oh, God is good. He is good. In the middle of, even in the middle of things that feel bad and look bad and seem scary, God is still good. God is always good. It's, God never stops being good. Um, we're in, God, is so, God is so awesome. Um, and here's a good example. Sundar Singh, born in 1889, died sometime, we think, maybe in 1929. Um, and uh, so tell me some things that you know about Sundar Singh. I'm not sure exactly what age I am. That's right. He did die young. Uh, there's some, there's a reasonable good. So, so, so nobody knows exactly when he died. Nobody knows exactly where he died. All they know is that he walked off with uh, a band of pilgrims into Tibet. Uh, he was frail in health by then, but he walked up, walked into the Himalayas on his way to Tibet and was never heard from again. Some people thought that he would, wouldn't survive the journey. Um, but... Um, interesting things you might want to know about him. Uh, he's one of the most famous Indian evangelists. He wasn't Hindu, he was Sikh. And there are some surprising differences between being a Sikh and being a, a Hindu. Uh, but they're both from India. And uh, he converted to Christianity and uh, became an evangelist. Um, but uh, an evangelist who took a vow of poverty. Um, he literally, he applied, applied the scriptures literally. Uh, he was sort of like an Indian version of St. Francis of Assisi. He just, he took a vow of property. He spent his whole life loving people and caring for people and kind of being at one with the Holy Spirit, at one with nature and uh, telling people about Jesus for everyone. He went, he went to seminary for a while after he got saved. He went to an Episcopal seminary in, in, in India. But he quit after seven months because he, he felt like it was a waste of time. They were trying to teach him stuff that he didn't need to know to tell people about Jesus. And it was distracting him from, what, from telling people about Jesus, so he just walked out. Um, and uh, he's um, one of the first people to recognize that the gospel must sometimes have a cultural context. In those days... Western missionaries had a terrible problem with going into a foreign country and a foreign culture and making people change the way they talked and change the food they eat and change the clothes they wear uh, in order to look like Western missionaries. Uh, Because they... uh, And he had... He heard the voice of God. Sundar heard the voice of God. Uh, He was standing on a railway platform one day when somebody from a, from the Brahmin caste we all know who the Brahmins the Brahmin caste are the, 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 the upper upper class and India even today has a pretty rigid caste system where people just can't touch each other and so uh, a, someone from, a man from the Brahmin caste uh, collapsed on the platform and somebody ran to get him a cup of water and the Brahmin looked at it and he said, that's not in my cup. I can't drink it. Um, and at that point, he felt like the Holy Spirit said to him, there are people in India who won't drink 
the water of the gospel unless you can find a way to serve it to them in their cup. And uh, so, um, anyhow, that was Sundar. Um, he's an interesting guy. I, uh, I wish Ruth was here today because he, when she was in India, was it? <laughs> grew up with missionaries in India, kind of close to the same area where he ministered. She was northeast and he was in the north. Uh, she wouldn't have crossed paths because she wasn't born until uh, after he'd already passed away. But he, this guy was legendary. I mean, I, he was like the Apostle Paul of India. He was legendary. I'll, for, I'll tell you more about it in a minute. Uh, but meanwhile, we got to... Just don't forget him. There he is. Um, previously in the book of Acts. This is where we ended up last week, chapter 8, uh, where, we, where Philip ran down a chariot and ministered to an Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, I've got to tell you this other thing. You know, how many of you were here last week and you heard this, the, the sermon about the Ethiopian eunuch? Okay, so, and you remember, that one of the things, a picture I showed you last week was about the, these churches that were actually dug out of solid rock. And it was in um, a city in uh, Ladella, uh, I'm going to say Labelada. Maybe that, I can't really pronounce, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but we'll, we'll say Labelada. That was the city of Labelada. Uh, it it's been a gr- source of great pilgrimages for Christians in Ethiopia for all, all the years since these churches were built. So Ruth was here last week. And after y'all all left, Ruth, because she's a very polite lady, didn't want to draw attention to herself. Um, you said it. Uh, anyhow, she, she, she waved me over, and she said, I just wanted to show you something. Now, Ruth is kind of like that. I just want to show you something. And she's, she had a, a big, very, very super ornate cross around her neck. And she said, do you know what this is? I said, no. She said, this is a, a La Bella da cross. When my husband went to Africa, because her husband was... He was a, we need to, somebody needs to write a book about his life, but he went all over the world smuggling Bibles and doing crazy stuff like that. He went to Africa, and he went to La Belleda, and he bought me this cross. This is a La Belleda cross. Uh, and it's got a special shape. It's kind of like a Celtic cross, except with lots more kind of things like this around it. And she said, I just don't know why. I just, I just, she doesn't wear it very often. She just decided to pick it up and she wore it to church last Sunday. When I taught about Labadella, I think Labadella, when I decided to talk about this city. And I don't know that there any, I don't know what that means. I don't know what significance it has. I just know that with God, there aren't any coincidences. So maybe I just ought to go back and preach that sermon again. um, but at any rate, yeah, so, so anyhow, I just thought that was so cool, y'all. I just thought that was so cool. You know how God has some ways of just every once in a while saying, I'm, I, I'm here. I'm just, one of the, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm here. Uh, I went all the way at, uh, to make Ruth pick up that cross. I went all the way to make her husband buy that cross 
uh, decades ago in Africa and give it to her so she would have it so she could wear it to church today so that you could see the, that there's no coincidence so that you could know that you're on the right track and that I'm saying good for you. That's a blessing, right? Okay? All right. There are no such thing as coincidences. But anyhow, it, it, the story of Philip and the eunuch ended when they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch no longer saw him. Didn't seem to be too bothered about it. Just went on his way rejoicing like he sees this happening all the time. Uh, and Philip found himself 40 miles away in a city named Azotus, but it didn't seem to face him at all. He just passed through and he kept preaching the gospel. He kept telling his story. To, and, he, and I don't know if he said... Hey, where am I? Um, excuse me, what town is this? What, what day is this? What, uh, and he just said, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Because it turns out that whether you're in the middle of the desert with an Ethiopian eunuch or whether you are in Azotus and don't have a clue as to how you got there, there's never not an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. All right? And just get used to it. All right. So now we're in chapter 9, and there's, the scene changes. If the first eight chapters of the, gospel, of the book of Acts were stories about um, how um, Peter and James and John and the church at Jerusalem got filled with the Holy Spirit and started preaching the gospel, chapter 9 is a humongous change. This is like if, if this were a play, that would be act one, and now we're at act two. Um, what happens in chapter nine? Yes, the, the most significant event in the history of the New Testament, the f- most significant uh, opportunity, the most significant uh, I, I can't even find the right word, uh, the, the event that changed the course of the church and got it out of being just focused around the environs of Jerusalem and launched it into a worldwide movement begins to happen in chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This is all going on in Jerusalem went to the high priest and asked for, for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, it's inter- so, so this is uh, Luke writing this story. Uh, and he said, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Luke quotes Paul later on in the book of Acts, when Paul is actually telling this story, uh, Paul said, and I was filled with murderous rage. I was filled with murderous rage against these Christians. And I wanted to hunt them down. So, of course, he went to the high priest because it turns out that the high priest isn't just a high priest over stuff that happens in Jerusalem. The high priest is more or less would be kind of compared to the Pope over all the Jews anywhere in the world. And, and Judaism, as far as the Jews was concerned, 
or, um, everything was cre- is connected to your religion. There's not a civil law, like you were speeding, buddy, pulled over, and a religious law, like why aren't you keeping the Passover? It's like anything that a Jew does is an extension of their religious identity. And so uh, the high priest was the chief law enforcement officer over all Jews anywhere in the world. So Paul went to the high priest and made a case for arresting Jews in Damascus, which Damascus, we all know today, is in Syria. Uh, There wasn't such thing as Syria in those days, but Damascus is just right across Mount Hermon from Galilee. I mean, you know, one of the first things that the the Israeli army did in the Six Days War in 1967 was they captured the Golan Heights, which is looking down over the Jezreel Valley uh, in northern Israel. And Damascus is just on the other side of the Golan Heights. So Damascus isn't very far away from Jerusalem as the crow flies. And and apparently a lot of Christians from uh, Jerusalem ran to Damascus for safety because there was a big Jewish uh, enclave there. So they headed out... uh, and hid themselves and took refuge in, in Jewish families and Jewish synagogues in Damascus. And it wasn't so much that Paul was trying to hunt for Christians who lived in Damascus, who might have accidentally become Christians uh, after the fact. He was looking for people who had run away. He was looking for ringleaders. He was looking for people who, who might have been sent out by the church to advance the cause of the gospel. He didn't know that Christians everywhere were doing this. So he, tra- he was going to try to stop, nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. Who's used to say that? Barney Fife. Barney Fife. Nip, that, nip that right in the bud. He was going to nip that Christian stuff right in the bud. And he was, if he could get to Damascus fast enough and round up all those guys and have them hauled back and thrown in jail or beaten or executed or something. He, Paul, Paul, Saul, he's still Saul. Saul could stop the spread of Christianity before it got... He was going to capture what few cows had gotten out of the barn and bring them back and put an end to this. Uh, And also look at this. Uh, I think this is cool. So that if he found any belonging to... The way. The way. This is the first identifying term that Christians are known to have applied to themselves. They were eventually called Christians by people who weren't Christians as a way of who they think they are, little Jesuses. Uh, but Christians refer to themselves inter- internally as the way. As we found a new way to live and it involves following he who has said what? I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't come to the Father by me. So they were just in the way, following the way because Jesus said he was the way. And sometimes I think that's not a bad idea. But you know, this isn't the first time we've seen Saul, right? Saul made a previous appearance. He was like a walk-on in the first act. He just came out in the first act and held some people's clothes. Now, the stoning of Stephen. Now, when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was kind of an apprentice at this time. He was, he was studying under Gamaliel, 
who was one of the, the wisest and most influential rabbis of that generation. He was a student of Gamaliel, and uh, they went on stoning Stephen. And so this is what Saul witnessed. He was holding the robes of all the people who said, it's kind of like, hold my beer, except it was, hold my cloak, because I'm going to pick up these thro- big stones and start throwing them at Stephen. And so he was holding their coats, watching them like a, you know, a coat jack guy, uh, and he was just staring there, standing there. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, please do not hold this sin against him. And having this, said this, he, he fell asleep. That's the end of chapter 7. The first verse of chapter 8, remember what it says? And Paul was giving his full support to what happened. And he was something in Saul snapped that day. And he was on a mission. He was going to stop Christianity. He was going to shut it down before it got out of control. Because it was wrong, wrong. The Christians were wrong. They're blasphemous. They are, they're, I can't just stand by and do nothing. I need to stop them. Okay. So now he's on his way. Now we are in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 9. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, uh, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what, I, what you must do. I think there was something going on in Saul's stomach about this time. (laughs) I know, big giant butterflies were just like swooping down and uh, just, I I, I mean, this, I can't imagine the shock and the fear. I mean, he, uh, he heard this voice and this bright light and it said, who, who are you, Lord? Uh, and it's clear, it has something to do with the Greek that I don't quite understand, but it's clear by the way this sentence is constructed in Greek that he recognized that this was God. He was just hoping so much, hoping so, so much that it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go in the city and I'm going to tell you what you have to do. Oh, no. (laughs) The men who traveled with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground. So this, this implies that Saul, in that bright light, saw something. They heard the voice, but Paul saw something. And there's plenty of, of 
in the, in the, in the scripture, there are plenty of incidences of theophanies, which means a physical appearance of God appearing in physical form to the angel of the Lord or something like that. So this isn't, uh, but, but apparently Saul saw it and they didn't. They just heard the voice. So Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him the rest of the way into Damascus and he was three days without sight. Didn't eat, didn't drink, couldn't see anything. Um, so at this point, he's not sure whether things aren't about to get worse. Um, yeah, he is in shock. Oh, and so would Chuck, Chuck, you'd be in shock too, right? Oh, yeah. All right, okay. Just wanted... <laughs> so, so, you know, but this is all God's doing, right? I mean, for God's purposes. And sometimes... Sometimes we end up in situations where our eyes are open and we're just not getting it. We're just not seeing it. Uh, it's not like our eyes fell out of our brains. I mean, we, but we just, our eyes are open and we're just not seeing it and we are, we are helpless and we're confused and we're so far off base that we just need somebody to take us by the hand. It's embarrassing, it's insulting, it's shaming. We feel like I, I'm, a, I'm a grown-up person. I ought to be able to run my life the way I want to run my life. I ought to have learned all these lessons by now. I ought to be able to figure this out. But I've, I'm as blind as a bat, and I keep running into the same couch over and over and over again. You think I'd know that there's a couch right there, but no, I just keep bang, ow, bang, ow. <laughs> I need somebody to take me by the hand and get me through this darkness. The stupidest thing you can ever do, A, is know that you're in darkness and not admit it and keep on walking around bumping into things, breaking stuff, getting bruises all over yourself and then when somebody comes along and offers you help, just say, no, I'm fine. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll be okay. okay. And not let, sometimes you need to be taken by the hand and trust somebody else. Because this may last three days. This may last three weeks. This may last three months. Um, you're not going to be able to make it by yourself. And that was Paul's, Saul's situation. He had an encounter that shocked him, scared him, and blinded him. As we'll see next week, God sent somebody to help him. But at this point, in this state, he was blind as a bat and would have been walking off of cliffs. He was really actually already walking off a cliff. He just didn't realize it. And God saved him. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been absolutely convinced that you are absolutely right? Absolutely. <laughs> but then you discovered often in a dramatically embarrassing fashion that you were absolutely wrong. So what do you do? What do you do? If you're so convinced that 
the law is on my side, or the Bible is on my side, or whoever is on my side, or, or my, you know, I know what I heard, I know what I saw, I know what's right, I'm, and I'm going to be... And Paul was, ex- I mean, he was, ex- he was exactly that way. How, it couldn't have been more clear, couldn't have been more clear to Saul that the disciples were wrong, that they were spreading heresy, and that they needed to be stopped. When you look at the evidence of what any normal, sane, serious, dedicated Jew believes, this was, this was a disaster. It never occurred to him that God might be doing something in all this. It never occurred to him that this might have been God's plan from the foundation of the world. It never occurred to him to believe that God could manifest, could come down and take on human flesh. It never occurred to him that the Spirit of God would be willing to talk to you and 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 you all at the same time and bypass me, Paul, who's been working my whole life to be the smartest guy in the room so that you'd have to come to me to find out stuff about God. None of that ever occurred to him. It never occurred to him that God might have a plan that involved something that appeared blasphemous and destructive and threatened Judaism at its very core. So he had every right to believe, I'm right, I'm right, I am right, I'm right. And, you, and, and I'm not changing my mind and I'm not back, back, backing down because I have right on my side. Only I'm wrong. And then at that moment when he heard the voice, I'm Jesus who you've been persecuting. Dramatically, embarrassingly, absolutely wrong. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're digging a hole, the first thing you have to do is just to get out of the hole is, is do what? Stop digging. Even after it was obvious to everyone, even you, that you were wrong, sometimes you double down on your wrongness to avoid having to surrender to the truth. You know you're wrong. You know when I think Saul realized he was wrong? When Saul, you know when I think Saul realized that he was wrong? When he heard Stephen say, Father, please forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit pricked his heart and said, I think somebody's made a big mistake here, but he wasn't ready to back down. At that moment, I think he realized that something terribly wrong had just happened, but he, he wasn't ready to let go of everything that he had believed and everything that he had built his life around and everything, his, his value system about how he believed the world should work. And so the only thing that he could do to silence that little voice, you know the voice I'm talking about, the voice that says, Karen... You need to go back and tell those people you were sorry. No, I don't. 
It wouldn't change them anyway. They're, they're just going to do it again. Uh, no, Karen, I really, I really think you need to go talk to them. Um, no, I'm going to just prove they're wrong. I'm going to work harder to prove they're wrong. Then I won't have to go talk to them. So I think that's where Saul was. He was, going, he was going to round up all those bad guys so that he could justify his position and prove that he was right and they were wrong. And then Jesus had to use the big guns to just say, no, stop it. Listen, you don't have to wait to be knocked from your horse and led around by the hand. Eventually, Jesus will do it. But you don't have to wait God's more than ready to, to, to just accept your surrender now. God is ready to accept your surrender now. It's just kind of up to you. Okay, so Paul had his throwdown on Damascus. Sundar had a throwdown too. Let me tell you a little bit about it. So you already know that Sundar was born and a Sikh family in the village of Rampur, Catania, in the Punjab state. And you, it won't make a difference unless you go to India. Yeah. Sundar's mother took him, when he was a young man, to sit at the feet of a sadhu, a, a holy man. Uh, um, kind of a, somebody who, who, who practiced poverty and, and just uh, tried to live a holy life. Guy lived, the, the, the sadhu lived in a jungle some miles away, but he also sent him to learn English uh, at a Christian high school. Um, so, but, but Sundo's mother died when he was 14. And he just went into a, this horrible spit pit of violence and despair, and he took out his anger on the missionaries. And he started persecuting people in his village who had actually converted to Christianity. He never converted to Christianity. He just was just there to learn English because English was kind of important. If you were growing up in India, if you didn't speak English, you had no chance of advancement in any well-paying job because the, the British were running India at the time. Uh, but he persecuted Christian converts and he ridiculed their faith. And in the final the defiance of Christianity, he went out and he bought a Bible and he sat on his front porch and he just burned it page by page while his friends watched. Take that, Christians. He reached the point by the time he was 16 that, his, that he just had done with religion. I'm done, done, done with religion. I'm done with Sikhism. I'm, uh, I'm done with Hinduism. I'm done with Christianity. I think they're all a joke. None of them mean anything. So he resolved to kill himself by throwing himself in front of a train. And he gave all the gods an ultimatum. He told the gods, either you, whichever one of you is real, reveal yourself to me before the next train comes which is still a couple of hours in case, in case the gods were busy and they needed to uh, get their stuff together. You, you, you either reveal yourself to me or I'm throwing myself in front of this train. 
and then he got down on his knees in front of the train track and he waited for the train to come. And he was, he was kind of praying, but he was mostly praying in this very defiant, in-your-face kind of situation. Uh, and this is what he said happened next. Then as I prayed, I saw a light. And I looked into the light and I saw the form of the Lord Jesus. It had such an appearance of glory and love. If it had been a Hindu incarnation, I would have prostrated myself before it. But it was the Lord Jesus whom I had been insulting for days. I felt that a vision like this could not have just come out of my own imagination. How, would I, how could I conjure up seeing something like this? And then I heard a voice saying in Hindustani, How long will you persecute me? I have come to save you. You were praying to know the right way. Why don't you take it? The thought then came to me, Jesus Christ is not dead. He's living. This must be he himself. So I fell at his feet and I got this wonderful peace which I could not get anywhere else. This is the joy I was wishing to get. And when I got up, the vision had all disappeared, but although the vision had disappeared, the peace and joy have remained with me ever since. And he dedicated himself to just walking the highways and byways. Uh, he, he adopted a special concern for Tibet. And there are lots of books written about his life that talk about the signs and wonders that followed him and the visions he had and uh, the work that he did in Tibet. Uh, he was called the, uh, the priest with bloody feet uh, for all of his trips up into the Himalayas uh, to visit Tibet, which is apparently not easy to get to. Uh, and he, his physical health just eventually declined. So he decided to make his lap last trip to Tibet at the age of 40. People weren't sure that he would make it back in. And as far as anybody knows, he didn't. But he, his peace and joy, he took a couple of, couple of trips to Britain once and the United States once and hated it, just hated it. Because even in the early 1900s, all that anybody in Britain and America cared about was what? Just affluence, just making money. Uh, nobody, even the Christians he ran into, really weren't caring about telling people about Jesus. Uh, so anyhow, <laughs> I lo- but I love this. The thought came to me, Jesus Christ isn't dead. You know, a lot of times people in churches, they go and they worship the Lord and, uh, and they sing the songs and they pray the prayers. But how, how often are they really, really sure that he isn't dead? He was just, oh, he isn't dead. It's true. It isn't dead. It's really true. Uh, how long do we wait for an encounter with the Lord before we really, it isn't, he's not dead. It's really true. For, for him, it wasn't the vision that he told people about later. For him, it was the peace and joy that he had. Somebody who wrote a book about his life said, I've known 
a lot of Hindu mystics. I've known a lot of, of Hindu holy people who will talk about enlightenment and will talk about uh, their spiritual journeys. But if you ask them, and have you achieved peace and joy, they will never say yes. They will always say, I'm still trying to find it. So for Sundar, was a Hindu, it was a, 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 an Indian holy man who said, I have found it. His name is Jesus, and he has never left me. Oh, okay. So, here's Paul's own words about his, he's, this is him telling people later, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, telling him later about, about his encounter with Jesus. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Most of them are still here, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' brother. Then he appeared to all the rest of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, somebody born too late, he appeared to me also. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be standing in front of you. I don't deserve to be standing in front of you. I I persecuted the church of God. And he called me anyway. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove to be in vain. That could could fit for all of you. That could be your story. That is your story. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, you will be what you will become. By the grace of God, you are here. It has not... Remember what it says uh, uh, in 1 John? Beloved... You are now children of God, but it does not yet appear what you shall be because you are in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus by the grace of God. All of that is by the grace of God. Not, uh, you, you had the good sense at one time to say yes to Jesus. Some of you, I think, said yes to Jesus about some stuff today, even while we were in the praise and worship time, and that's going to lead you to becoming more like Jesus. Every time you say yes to Jesus, you become more like him, gives you his permission for him to work more in you. So who knows, by the time you see Jesus face to face, what is going to have transpired. But always and always and forever, by the grace of God, by what he does in your life, by what he has planned for your destiny. You, will, you are what you are. And I think Paul, if he were standing before you now, would say, the worst, most horrible thing that I ever did was persecute the church of Jesus Christ. But I have to tell you, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know where I'd be today. I went through all that ugly, nasty, dark, ugly time where I was the meanest and hateful I could be to Jesus. And he reached out and he caught me and he stopped me and he changed me. If I had just been a regular guy doing regular stuff, I don't know, I'd 
God used a horrible event in my life to call me to himself. So if you're sitting down sometimes figuring out what's going on here, why is this happening? Remember like we talked on Wednesday night and like Mike talked to us a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, seems like a year. Uh, and in the, anytime you're in the middle of anything, even if it's awful, Lord, what are you doing in me? What are you planning in me? What, what is going to be the outcome of this as you are applying it to my life? Let me apply it to my life, Lord, and become more like Jesus through it. I'll close with this story. It's another story. C.S. Lewis, we all know C.S. Lewis. Know a little bit, most of you know a little bit about him. One of the most powerful advocates for Christianity in the 20th century. Wrote all the Chronicles of Narnia series. Wrote great books on important Christian subjects about miracles, about suffering, about pain, uh, about grief. Um, and he, he also wrote uh, lots of great things just to help people understand the basics about Christianity if they've been struggling with, with things like faith and don't believe that the gospel, can't understand, can't wrap their, their brains around the fact that the gospel could be true. Um, he also wrote an autobiography um, for the earlier years of his life uh, called Surprised by Joy uh, in which he tells the story of being a professor at Oxford hating Christians, hating Christianity, hating everything about Jesus, thinking that it was a joke, uh, arrogant, prideful, and people were praying for him. Tolkien was trying to witness to him. Uh, some of his students were trying to... And one of his students actually challenged him and said, how do you know it's not true? You've never tried it. And he was just like going, la, 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 I can't hear you. But he also grudgingly started reading. Uh, and God used what he read. I just have to read this. You must picture me alone in that room, his, his quarters at uh, Magdalen College in Oxford, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. And I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the highest gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And just know this one thing, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Isn't that powerful? God made him the most reluctant convert in all of England. 
No, he basically says, I didn't want to be converted. I didn't want to surrender. I didn't want to come. God just would not let me go. He opened the highest gates and brought me in, even though I was trying to look for a way of escape the whole time, and he wouldn't let me go. He did that for Paul. He did that for Sundar. He did it for C.S. Lewis. And he keeps on doing it for us. So I'm just kind of curious what you're struggling with right now. God started something this morning. God started meddling with some of you uh, in our prayer time this morning. Said he's got all the time in the world. He's just waiting on you. What are you struggling with? Maybe you've already surrendered to Jesus as Lord of your life, but what, what are you struggling with? What, where's that little voice, that still small voice inside of you saying, come on, <coughs> come on, don't let go. I mean, I'm not gonna let go of you. It's time for you to let go, but, but I got all day, I got all month, I got all year, I've got eternity. What have you got? Whatever the, 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 whatever the voice is telling you, and you're trying to suppress it and go la, 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 la about, um, it's just a question. Um, where, is it that, where is it that you're ready to surrender? You, you've already, whether you know it or not, you've already lost the throwdown. You've already lost. How can, you, can you just say yes, Lord? Because you're deeply loved by God and you're fully accepted by God, completely, permanently forgiven by God. Yes, you are. Stop arguing with him about that. Why do you keep arguing with him about that? Stop it. You're lavishly blessed by God. I mean, God ought to know whether you're totally, permanently, completely forgiven by him or not. You're trying to call him a liar? You're lavishly blessed by God and eternally, perfectly embraced by God as his child. You are a child who brings him unspeakable joy. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And anything that's risening around inside your heart right now that says you're not is a lie. It's a lie. It's time to let it go. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. And any of those areas in our hearts where we have held anything back, any areas where we have heard your voice nudging us forward and we've just been making excuses and saying, but you don't understand, but you don't understand, but you don't understand. And using all sorts of ridiculous excuses to not trust you. Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. If you have to to blind us and knock us on the ground and drag us around bumping into furniture three days, ten, whatever it is you have to do, Lord, to get our attention, just do it. We don't want to hold anything back from you. Any of those areas where we've been living in shadows, any of those areas where we've been um, trying to hide stuff from you when we're really just mostly trying to hide from ourselves, any of those areas, Lord, where we've been deceived, deluded, disappointed, any of those areas, Lord, where we've been making up excuses. 
to not trust you and follow you completely. We don't want to be there anymore, Lord. We don't want to be there anymore. This is an important moment, Lord. We don't want to run past it. So right now, if that little voice is talking to you, I want you to just stop. Consider Paul. Consider Sundar. Consider C.S. Lewis. Consider those places where the, where the Holy Spirit has been dragging you, kicking and screaming in a direction that you've been afraid to go. And, but here you are. Are you ready to let Jesus change you? Are you ready to let Jesus love you? Are you ready to let Jesus deliver you? On his terms, not yours. Just want to give you a moment to say, yes, Lord. And and don't give him any excuses this time. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. for never giving up on us. We ask it in your name. Amen.